0: sentencing, and we're doing it on a comparative basis. So we're trying to learn from the experience of 193 countries. Uh, The reading, I won't cover much beyond the basic West European, Japanese, Chinese models. That's unfortunate, but there's just not a lot of scholarship out there on Asia and Africa. But I will bring in examples from Asia and Africa to the best of my ability to illustrate some of the material that's discussed in the literature. Let us remind ourselves, why do we study Why do we compare criminal justice systems and the role of politics? Well, let me first take a slight detour and and talk about crime and politics and its relation historically. Uh, Clearly, whether you're dealing with a dictatorship or a democracy, crime is a very big concern. Obviously, uh, some people are more at risk of being a victim of crime than others. Generally, the poorer you are, the more you're at risk of being a victim of crime. However, the paranoia about crime or the fear of crime, some of which is totally rational, uh, is not really related at all to the risk. I mean, people at low risk of crime seem to be the most worried about it, uh, maybe because they have more property. Uh, But anyway, that's a psychological factor that also seems to be general, not universal, but general across countries. And uh, in the United States, because we have a federal political system, again, what is a federal system? We have states in our United That's right. We have decentralization, devolution of power. Uh, to federate power is to decentralize power. And again, it's odd, because we call our national government the federal government. Canada is the same thing. It, too, has a federal system. But the federal government is the national government within a federal system, which decentralizes power to states and localities. Now in the United States, like Germany, where I was last week, uh, the criminal justice power is really rooted in the states. As you know from our, st- our discussions of common law in the United States, 99% of all criminal trials or criminal justice processes are conducted by our states, our local government. Now it's true that some of the Federal crimes, the national crimes are prosecuted, which are prosecuted, are some of the most serious. Certainly, terrorism, killing a police officer or a federal official, for example, are federal crimes. And certain uh, conspiracies that cross state lines to engage in counterfeiting terrorism, um, any range of, of smuggling cigarettes from one state to another because the taxes are lower is actually a federal crime, for example. And it probably is a state crime as well. And by the way, the prohibition in the Constitution against double jeopardy does not apply because w- when a state prosecutes you for the same act as a ne- as a federal government crime would be, because these are two separate crimes. One is to do it in the state, and the other is to do it across the regional lines. doesn't mean you'll always get prosecuted in both jurisdictions, but you might be. And there's a whole. Uh, series of legal rules that you might study in law school in a Conflict of Laws class, which apply to determining which state has jurisdiction over a criminal or, for that matter, for a civil matter, in the same way that uh, in international law, there would be conflicts over jurisdiction, over nationality, or citizenship on the one hand, as opposed to geography, where a alleged crime took place, or even in a third-party country if there are certain effects of the crime in a third-party country. So we can say, generally, most uh, democracies, and for that matter, most dictatorships, there is public opinion that wants crime-controlled judges, public officials, on their ability to provide criminal justice safety. And it's probably a safe bet to say that even authoritarian regimes, which don't have free elections or free press, nevertheless generate legitimacy by reducing crime. And generally, authoritarian regimes have lower crime rates uh, because there's a lot of fear out there that you know the police state or some government unit will uh, arbitrarily arrest you uh, and certainly doesn't respect your rights and so can knock on your door without a warrant, uh, can apprehend you and take action. Uh, in addition, uh, there is variation of the rights of defendants. Democracies generally provide a high degree of protection of defendants in terms of right to habeas corpus, that is the right to be, you know, have why, the, your detention explained, usually by having to charge you with a crime, but not necessarily. There are some other circumstances, such as in the United States, a suspected terrorist does not have to be charged with a crime to be detained for a longer period of time. Uh, and in the United States, in most democracies, anywhere between 48 hours and 72 hours is the time limit for charging you with a crime in most situations. Otherwise, writ of habeas corpus uh, would be uh, demanded by a lawyer uh, on behalf of the defendant, uh, the plaintiff, excuse me, uh, that the alleged defendant be actually charged with the crime or be released. And in authoritarian regimes, defendants have fewer rights. And um, the argument is made, therefore, democracies might ought to reduce the number of rights Uh, in order to reduce the crime rate and i think there's very little doubt that if we suspended all rights the crime rate would be lower but would it be a better place to live would it be consistent with american rules and laws obviously the answer is no so we do trade off rights for crime rates to some extent and that trade-off is one that's a part of the issue of politics and crime because to some extent these issues are not determined by courts, but term- determined by legislatures in weighing the balance between do they, do, does the public uh, want to have more rights and consequently probably a higher crime rate, uh, or fewer rights and a lower crime rate. And by the way, you know, the right to be a life free of crime is a right as well. Whether you would consider it a constitutional right or a statutory right or a natural right would be a subject of debate. We also study politics and crime because we know that uh, the way that the government is structured to fight crime reflects politics. First of all, the type of regime, as I've just mentioned, explains a great deal. Secondly, uh, the type of police force that you have in a particular locality around the world is shaped by historical circumstances. If you go to India uh, today, the Indian Army, the Indian Civil Service, and the Indian police are almost exactly the way the British organized it practically over two centuries as a trading company, and then since the mid-19th century, according to British colonialism. Uh, and they have so many of the rites and rituals that existed. And the regions in India that had more autonomy, that were princely states, that have all those colorful outfits and head guard that you see in the movies or read about, uh, those are also continuing. And those regions tend to have much more uh, local tribal rule. And the extreme of that would be in Northwest Frontier Province uh, within it, the federal and regional administrated territories where the national and the regional governments of Pakistan have never even gone in. It's strictly ruled by tribal customs and tribal law. And part of the thing I think that the United States doesn't understand uh, particularly well is that uh, the Indian, when the Pakistani army is asked to go into these areas uh, and establish law and order, they're establishing it for the first time in Pakistani history. And for that matter, the first time in three or four centuries because the British obviously never tried to do so. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Gandhi, or, or at least have studied Gandhi. There's a, a poignant moment when you know Mahatma Gandhi's sitting there. At this point, he's become shirtless uh, in his sandals, trying to live like an Indian peasant. And he's surrounded not only by his allies, Jinnah, ne- Nehru, uh, and others, but also the British delegation, which include Lord Louis Mountbatten, who was later killed by an IRA bomb 30 or 40 years later, but he was the last viceroy of the British Empire. Uh, and Gandhi says, you know, with only 100,000 Britishers in India, which was by far the largest presence India, British Britain had in any of its colonies, because India was the jewel of the crown, but he said basically, you know, if we choose to uh, not cooperate with you, you can't govern us. We will <laughs> commit crimes. They will be nonviolent, but we will resist you, and you'll come to your senses and you will leave. And the British are totally shocked and a matter of a couple of years later they leave because they realize 100,000 people can't govern a country, um, at least can't govern the country without expending enormous resources, including policemen, uh, but also acts of violent repression which would hurt British prestige, particularly since British, Britain claimed its colonies were more civilized, they were there to be civilized, uh, and then you can't just shoot on point-blank range innocent people in order to make up for your lack of resources and presence in the country. So part of the issue of of developing criminal justice practices reflects politics. And one of those political issues is how many police officers, how much force are they allowed to use? Is that force going to be governed by rules of law or not? Uh, If it's governed by rules of law, will they be democratically determined by the legislature or by the traditions of colonialism and so forth? And one of the problems India has today in Pakistan and Bangladesh, is that uh, the the police for, the the police forces were trained to repress revolts against colonialism, and so it's it's a very high degree of use of violence, much higher than we would be accustomed to in the United States. Although we see uh, what the United States does do when it's threatened with uh, threats of this type. Um, when we, tr- we compare, like we compare in comparative politics, we're tr- comparing <laughs> different units of analysis. We might compare police forces. We might compare criminal justice courts. We might compare public opinion and the relationship between these factors in order to understand the nature of policing, the nature of criminal justice courts, uh, the role of politics in melding these processes across countries. And we can see we begin again by saying, is this country unique or is this country different? And if so, why? Then we have hypotheses which are possible tentative explanations as to why. And then we do a hypothesis test, which basically says, what must be true if this explanation is true in this particular case? And then we say, is it true in fact, in order to come up with a theory or a concept or an explanation for, policing in general, or why some countries use heavy force and other countries don't use heavy force, or why crime rates go up across countries when unemployment goes up, or why crime rates go down when unemployment goes down, why militant militia groups appear in the United States and other countries when unemployment goes up, and why their presence goes way down when unemployment goes down. Another thing in the news from last week while I was away about the Michigan militia showing up, uh, and it's no, Accident, Michigan has the highest unemployment rate, I believe, in the entire country. Uh, among the factors that might explain why militia groups are present in higher numbers in Ohio, Michigan, uh, and Indiana than in other states in the country, where the South gets a bum riot. they always think the South has the highest, I would call it a bum rap, um, you know, having the, these kind of militant right wing. Armed groups, vigilante groups, but in fact, it's, it's the Midwest, northern Midwest, that has the highest rates of these presents. <coughs> now, where do we begin with this kind of analysis? Obviously, we begin with the crime rate, okay? And the crime rate is calculated in basically two different ways across countries. Anyone know what those two ways would be? Armed No, how do you count crime in general? Not what, what are examples of crime. No, no, I know. No. Okay, so one way is to count. Now, how do you count them? How do you do that? Arrest. Okay, arrest might be one way. It might be reports. Okay, a lot of reported crime doesn't lead to arrest. Your house gets burglary, burglarized, you call the police. Police doesn't make any arrests in, in I think, 90% of reported burglaries. I mean, it's, it's a very low arrest rate. Why? Well, because the professionals out there, um, you know, they come into your home when you're not there, you don't have a clue who's done it. It's, you might think it's the delivery man or some tree worker across the street. But you know, police can't arrest these people unless there's probable cause. Just because you, alim- you can narrow it down to five or six people who conceivably can do it. But unless you've got evidence to say this one person probably did it, that person can't be arrested. So the more typical one of the two ways is the uh, complaints to the police. And that's an easy way to do. If the police keep good records, then you have a good sense of whether the rates are going up and down. But what's the problem with that reporting technique? A lot of people don't report. A lot of people don't report crimes. Uh, Rapes, in particular, uh, the woman, typically a woman, can be a man, of course. uh, Is so humiliated they they just and in a state of post-traumatic stress. And if they know that if they have called upon a stand, they will be cross-examined in a way that can be extremely humiliating, in a ways that seems like a victim shouldn't have to be put through, you might be inclined not to even get involved. And of course, people don't report crimes because they're busy, because they're not public-spirited. You might say in criticism uh, that Jenny Gina case, Kitty Genovese case was famous when I was a kid in New York. A, a, a kid, one Kitty Genovese, I can't remember if she was young or old, was murdered uh, no one saw the murder, but they heard the incredible cries of, of pain and grief and struggle. Uh, and in this entire entire apartment building, I think maybe they did see it. I can't even remember the details, but no one called the police. And no one intervened to help her. Very famous and when I was growing up, and people study this kind of thing. Why don't people come in to help? But now we do know there are many, many acts of hero- heroic help that people give their neighbors in times of need. People sometimes even risk their life to help people. Uh, but th- there's also this fear of, if I get involved, am I going to be threatened? Am I going to be hurt? Or if I do something accidentally wrong, you know, like I help somebody who's injured and their injury is worse, I, could, I might be liable for a crime, or at least I might be liable for some civil uh, action that would lead me to be sued for money. The other way of calculating crime, what would that be? Oh, no, they did it, the survey? Yeah, surveys. You're uh, filling out a census form. Have every, I, I haven't actually done mine yet, but I know it's only 10 questions, 10 minutes. Uh, but uh, when I get around to I will do it. But one of, one of the odd things about the American census is that it's very inaccurate, right? Why? Because co- you have to count everybody, and you can't count everybody for, ver- for a number of reasons. Uh, physically means they have to point the finger at you if you don't report yourself. In the old days, they counted everybody. It was no questionnaire. 10 questions, 10 minutes. Um, and so the problem was worse in the past. But you know, unless they see you, your body, and you're not home when the census person comes there, or nobody's home, then nobody gets counted. I, I don't know the rules well enough to say if the parent says we've got five people living here, you can count five or you have to actually have evidence of five, uh, or you actually have to see all five. I actually don't even know how it works. But the point I'm making is that you could construct a survey that would take a representative sample of the whole country and and count that very, very well, and get a more accurate count of the population of the United States than you can ever get by counting the population of the United States. It's just a basic principle. Now, the big if is it's got to be a representative sample, but if you have very skilled statisticians who can do that, uh, and you go to metropolitan areas and you take the random <coughs> sample of people, that actually turns out to be much more accurate. Um, I, I don't know, I, I believe our national census is always undercounts the population. Uh, and so we could get a better sense of the entire population that way. Um, so, uh, an alternative way of counting crime is to do a survey of people in the street and ask them if they've been a victim of crime, and if it's a stratified sample representing the different demographic groups and geographically located groups of people in the country, um, it is said that way is a a much better way. That's from a different part of the Justice Department. The reported crime rate is the FBI conducts that uh, sampling of all police departments. It's actually not a sampling, but reports of crime. Neither is perfectly accurate. And certainly what we're really interested in is the trend. You know, The exact number is not so important as to is crime going up or is it going down. Uh, and do the police and other public officials, if we're talking about democracy, take the kind of actions that would reduce the crime rate? Now, one of the great debates was how did the crime rate, which was really peaking around 1990, 1991, before police departments started cracking down on drugs, and before police departments started using management information systems to deploy police resources, especially cops on the beat, uh, to where the crime rate was highest, and then reduce crime by effective police science, police management and administration. Or was there some cooking of the books, because politicians in democracies run on the crime rate, run on reducing the crime rate. And in particular, Rudy Giuliani in New York, who reduced the crime rate the most in the country. New York went from being one of the most dangerous, along with Atlanta and Detroit, which are the two traditional leaders in the country. And I don't know if that's partly because of reporting error or not, but New York was usually number three. And of course, being a media capital, got a whole lot of attention about the crime rates. And then Giuliani's whole political career was catapulted because he reduced the crime by two thirds in, in the space of one term as, uh, as mayor of New York, and and you know all kinds of Democrats um, used used to say a liberal, a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged. You know, once to throw all your liberal out, you've been mugged once and that's it, you've had it, and you know he just got voted by all of these liberals in the Upper West Side, which is the People's Republic next to Berkeley, California, the most left-wing congressional district in the country. The east side is more conservative. More rich people live over there. The west side of Manhattan voted for Rudy Giuliani when he reduced the crime rate. So you know there's a relationship between politics and crime, and that if you can reduce a high crime rate to a low crime rate, they don't care what party you're in. All kinds of people will vote for you because everyone is scared of crime. I mean, to some extent. And it's a very important issue in the United States because crime rates here are much higher than they are in similarly developed countries. And an interesting question, of course, would be in terms of politics and crime, why is it that in spite of the heavy emphasis, or maybe because of the heavy emphasis on crime in our politics, have we not been able to reduce crime rates substantially until the 1990s? And was it police science that came to the rescue? Or was it, as Giuliani's critics suggested, his harsh treatment of people, roughing up people, making them scared? In other words, turning New York City a little bit more into a more authoritarian type regime, where civil rights were not uh, particularly respected, um, and the fudging certain rules to get people who they know were bad. In addition to police science, using management information systems. Pr- particularly the two types of indices of crime rates. The other thing uh, that they did was focus on career criminals because the professional criminals are the ones that commit most of the crimes in the United States. It's a very small geographic area in every country where the crime rate is 90% of the murders usually are in one police precinct or two in every single major city of the country. And if you can focus on the career criminals, especially the drug lords, you can greatly reduce the crime rate. And the third aspect was the so-called broken glass theory uh, advanced by James Q. Wilson, which uh, basically said, you know, if you clean up the broken glass, people will take pride in their neighborhood, and then uh, criminals won't have the kind of environment in which crime is accepted. And so they started arresting people for minor crimes, because logic would have it focus on the big crimes, because that's where the political energy and heat and paranoia and pressure is on. But actually, if you uh, arrest somebody who breaks a glass, you're not only going to clean up the neighborhood, but you're probably someone who's willing to break a window pane of glass is also maybe willing to burglarize your home or hold you up with a gun. Uh, And that, at least, was claimed to be a third type of technique that greatly reduced the crime rate in the 1990s. Now, the crime rate's gone back up, but it's gone back nowhere near to that big peak period, late 80s, early 1990s which also, of course, coincided with the Greek economic recession of the early 90s. Uh, And so, of course, people resort to crime when they don't have a job because they can't eat or because they can't get by uh, and so forth. Uh, Now, in determining why the crime rate might be higher in the United States than others, the, the reading does show you some of the comparisons. This data is obviously old, but you can see that the United States, is so much higher than almost any country in the world, except Russia, <coughs> and the United States. Like, with the exception of the Commonwealth Caribbean, that is the former, the English post colonies of the of the Caribbean, like Jamaica. Uh, the United States and Russia, and no countries in Europe. The United States and Russia have, and China have high use of the death penalty, and in Europe, the death penalty is uh, not permitted. Uh, Even Russia right now has a moratorium on the death penalty because Russia uh, is a member of the Council of Europe. And as a member of the Council of Europe, uh, you have to ratify the European Convention of Human Rights and its protocol, which abolishes the death penalty. Russia is not compliant in abolishing the death penalty. It's just a policy of having, so far, a three-year moratorium on the use of the death penalty. We'll see in the wake of the terrorist attack by Chechens, presumably. Uh, in the Moscow subway last week that killed something like 37 people immediately, and probably more over time, whether the uh, Rus- Russian regime will continue to have a moratorium on the death penalty. It is widely believed that the death penalty deters uh, murderous acts. But if someone is a suicidal bomber, like this, these two uh, wives who are widows who are getting revenge, uh, death penalty by definition is not going to deter somebody who kills himself. So if you think about it rationally, you would say, as far as this particular incident goes, I don't think the death penalty would have any effect because these persons killed themselves anyway. Unless you you figure that they thought, well, maybe if I fail and the bomb doesn't go off, then I could still be killed. But in any event, that's an unusual particular situation. United States, according to this table, this is from 1984 data using Interpol, which is the interpolicing agency that cooperates with police agencies around the world to get international criminals uh, controlled drug trafficking, but not just drug trafficking, all kinds of trafficking, for example. We had 7.9 homicides per 100,000 people. The next highest country in the world was Northern Ireland, which was in the midst of a major uh, terrorist population. Uh, terrorist incidents uh, back then. And most countries are between one and two as compared to seven nines. And most countries are between four and six times lower a rate, that is one-sixth to one-eighth the homicide rate that we have in the United States. Um, Now, how do we evaluate these crime rates? One thing you could ask is, are all these rates accurate? Right? Maybe we have a higher rate because we count better, count more accurately. We spend the money to count two times of rates. If they're only doing unreported crimes, then their rates are going to be lower because people report fewer crimes. And I suspect part of that difference can be explained by the fact that we use surveys as well as reported crime rates and that their real homicide rates are higher than those that, that they report. A second uh, would be that you know crime victims get more justice in the United States. So they may also be more likely to report crimes in the United States because we do have a lot of lawyers here. We have many more lawyers, in fact, than most countries have because we have the common law system, which is more labor intensive, because we have uh, a litigious society that has started giving huge amounts of money to people for going to court. So it's worth it to hire a lawyer. Uh, We have whole kinds of people who support lawyers for example, there's this story, I don't know if any of you listened yesterday to the replay on This American Life. Anyone listen to NPR, public radio? Nobody listens. Uh, not last night, okay, well, they had a replay from 19, from something about six or eight years ago of this uh, former uh, monk who was an abbot who was given uh, this job of, of replacing priests who had been involved in scandal, not just pedophilia, but you know, stealing money the parish funds, and all sorts of things. And um, after about his fifth or sixth tour of you know, being told not to tell anybody anything about what had happened before, because he actually didn't know what the priest had done before, he started to get curious. And then he discovered that the Vatican and all the church, Catholic churches that, where he was involved with kept detailed but secret records in Latin. Uh, and so he you know, became kind of an activist monk who said, you know, we've got to use this information to make sure that these priests don't get reassigned, not just, again, for pedophilia, but for other things. Uh, and he got no results, so he got frustrated and frustrated, so he quit the priesthood. And then he joined um, help, uh, helping these lawyers help people file lawsuits because he thought that at, he was actually serving his priestly duty by cleaning up the Catholic Church by forcing the Catholic Church to get rid of these bad priests who are the distinct minority, tiny minority. Um, uh, that didn't make him too happy with the Catholic Church. So while he, had, he got married later, left the priesthood, uh, put his daughter in Catholic schools, but he got so much grief for suing the, helping these lawyers sue the Catholic Church that he left, uh, he took his daughter out of the Catholic parochial school. Anyway, it was kind of an interesting story about that. and. Uh, The idea of the Catholic Church being above the law is one that is taken from a secular perspective from the Catholic Church's viewpoint I think you know they think we've been around two millennia these countries in some cases have been around three or four hundred years but you know who are they to tell us what to do we've always had in most countries you know, the, the, the ability to, to run our own affairs because you know we didn't interfere with the, the politics too much and they don't interfere with our internal organization. Um, in, in a secular democratic republic, secularism means that nobody, even a church, is above the law. And so there's a conflict there between Catholic social thought uh, and, and public opinion. And, and you know, if people vote with their feet, and leave the Catholic Church to some extent in Europe, where this scandal has just opened up in the last 6 to 12 months, as opposed to the United States, where uh, it came about a decade or so earlier, in part because in the United States, the Catholic Church, because we're secular or any other religious institution, is not above the law. And in Europe, you could not, and you still cannot, sue the Catholic Church for money. So. The scandal in Europe that you've read about is mostly over the fact that they didn't have these priests prosecuted, but there's no big series of lawsuits bankrupting uh, archdiocese in Europe over this scandal, because you cannot sue in civil law countries for damages uh, a religious organization. Whether that will change or not uh, remains to be seen. It's sort of odd, because in the United States, we have more religious liberty, and it may be that and more religiosity and more people going to church and other religious institutions for a whole host of reasons. But uh, I think the idea is that you know, we have strict secularism. That is that uh, we don't tell the church how to run its business and they don't, the church doesn't tell the United States government and state governments how to run its business either, but nobody's above the law. And if you, you commit a crime or you do an illegal act, you would either be punished criminally or, for an illegal act that's not criminal, pay damages for uh, the illegal actions. Now, that, the crimes of the Catholic Church that are in the news, particularly the pedophilia scandal, uh, is one that shows you another relationship between crime and politics. And that is, acts which the public cares about is going to get the most attention. And I do think, you know, I should say, I do think the Catholic Church. There's a lot of prejudice against the Catholic Church, and a lot of the hysteria comes from people that don't like the Catholic Church, and, and they're using this to, you know, once again, beat up, beat up the Catholic Church. But that, that's an, sort of an aside. The fact is, pedophilia is one of those crimes, like murder and homicide, generally, that the public cares about. So one of the reasons this story is getting so much attention is that, you know, pedophilia really is one of those un terrible crimes that people just can't stand. And that's why we have these laws that require people to wear ankle bracelets when they're sex offenders and released from prison. That's why uh, it's very hard for sex offenders to get a job and find a place to live, because everyone knows they are sex offenders. Uh, it's because the American public really hates sex offenders. Now, I don't know whether sex offending is something that some kind of condition you're born with Uh, Or not. I mean, Tiger Woods is supposedly oversexed and uh, had to go to a clinic in Alabama. But you know, I don't. I have no idea whether that's a genetic condition or you know, just because you're a celebrity, you just think you can. You know. But this is the way the media has portrayed him, and I don't know whether he's. You know, this is true or not. So because the media focuses on certain crimes, and the more media portrays the certain crimes as being some kind of condition. Uh, the, the way the political system responds has a lot to do with the way the media portrays different types of activities. Uh, nobody accused Tiger Woods of committing a crime, as far as I know. Uh, and he's obviously an American hero. And if he, he wins the Masters this week, I guess all will be forgiven. Um, but if he, if he has a hard time or if he, if he doesn't play well, you know, he, this, this particular issue will get more attention, I suppose. Uh, murder is the worst crime. Murder is the crime that gets the most attention. Murder, <coughs> even though it gets many more detectives trying to solve these crimes, uh, and you know, often, how often I don't know. But we know with the Innocence Project, convicting innocent people. I don't know. I mean, there are 110 cases of known uh, innocent people being wrongly convicted for rape from the Innocent Project. The Innocent Project has an office in Atlanta. If anyone wanted to do an internship, I could get you an internship. You can get it yourself, and I I could be a faculty advisor, or you could get another faculty advisor. But it's a very interesting project that has come about. Uh, Barry Sheck and his colleague at Cardozo Law School in New York started it in the era of genetic evidence being able to be uh, using blood or semen uh, to generally exonerate defendants. Uh, for, uh, sorry, con- convicted people uh, if it could prove that there is no chance that the person whose genetic evidence was found at the scene of a crime was the person who's been sent to jail. Um, even with all of the resources placed on solving murder, on average, historically, in the United States, only 50% of murders are solved. And that means half the time, murderers get away with it. Now, if they're career criminals, the chances of them getting away with all of their crimes obviously goes way down over time. But it's a fair thing to say that uh, if you can only solve half the murders, imagine how what the small percentage of burglaries, or jaywalking, or speeding, or or drunken driving uh, of these kinds of crimes are solved. And the way democracies focus on solving these kinds of crimes is to say, we know we can't solve most crimes. But we will arrest anyone we catch doing a crime as a deterrent to say to you, if you do this, you will get the same treatment. And if you get arrested and are convicted and have to do time, you can't say it's not fair because all the other ones, other people got away with it. You know, you didn't get away with it, it's not your lucky day, too bad. And then you get put through a process that is really awful, right? From the moment you're put in handcuffs, dragged to the police station, thrown into ACDC, that's not the name of a rock group, or it's the Atlanta Corrections Detention, I don't know what the C stands for, but it's right here, one MARTA stop south of here. Was it West End? No, it's, anyway, this is the first, Garnett, South, 150 S1. 150 Garnett. 150 OK. I would ask how you know that so well. But. The Municipal Court is also on another end of Garnett. I've, I've some, spent some time in traffic court over the years. There. Uh, but you know, getting in front of that prison, that jail cell with 50 other guys, some of them pretty darn mean looking, is not, I've, I've heard, of, I've never had that experience. I hope I never had that experience. Or if you get arrested and, and you know, you've had a prior offense, or if you've been arrested and you've done a serious crime, that's where you're headed. And it, it ain't pleasant, I'm sure, and that's only the beginning of the problems that could afflict uh, you if you end up getting sentenced to jail. You know, I, I imagine, uh, it's a prison, rather. I imagine prison is no cakewalk, even though you may get your own cell for a long-term sentence. Uh, the homicide rates in the United States have gone down with the higher rates of arrests. Very simply, there are two basic theories as to why the crime rate went down in the 1990s beyond police science. The first is uh, the notion that abortion became legal. It's a a theory that many people believe, that, that basically people who commit crimes come from families that don't have the capacity to uh, raised children properly. Uh, I'm not an advocate of abortion. I'm not I'm just make, st- stating a, a, an explanation that's given for why the crime rates went down. All the people that would have been born by mothers, often teenage mothers who can't control kids and, and, and make sure basically that the sons wouldn't misbehave weren't born. You could say murdered if you want. Uh, but in any event, that's, that's one of the other alternative theories Um, And I think, you know, in addition to police science and this theory about abortion and and broken windows and so forth, uh, is the idea that uh, public opinion wanted more people arrested. So in addition to aborting fetuses, they took people off the streets. In the 1990s, it actually began in the 80s, but throughout the 1990s, states built prisons like crazy and even for-profit prison management companies. Sometimes they own their own facilities, sometimes they lease them as part of their state and uh, contracts. uh, Correction Corporations of America and other such companies in particular are managing jails and prisons, and now immigrant detention centers all across the country. And with respect to at least the prison population and the jail population, population was tripled through higher arrest rates. Very aggressive arrest of, of drug traffickers on the theory that drug trafficking is not a victimless crime, because the people who commit tr- drug trafficking, the drug sale may be a victimless crime. And the purchaser may be doing it voluntarily, but the argument was these are also the people who do killing and other kinds of serious crimes. Uh, the critics of this p- policy say, first of all, you know, we're becoming like the Soviet Union. We've got prisons all over the place. 1% of the American population um, is behind jail or prison bars now. And that's a pretty high rate. I mean, it's 99 out of 100 or not. But still, 1% is, you, know, you only see that in places like Russia and China, uh, police states. Second, it does enormous damage to the communities, particularly minority populations, but also poor white populations, which also have been subjected to these higher uh, incarcerations, particularly for drug abuse related issues. Uh, You know, it does enormous damages to those families. And what's it like to take a father or a mother, you know, particularly in a single parent situation? What happens to those kids? Well, the kids suddenly are being raised by foster parents, typically which means they're being shuttled around from house to house every six to 12 months. Very few of those foster kids get adopted. Um, and I know there are lots of wonderful foster parents out there. Uh, there was a star story about this family in Decatur that have been raising kids now for 40 or 50 years, and they're very close to the foster kids. But you know, I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I don't have any evidence of this, but I, I think a lot of people are foster parents for the money. Now I don't think that's a dishonorable motive if you do a good job, but you know, if you're you're doing it because you're desperate and you also have lots of responsibilities, how good a job can you do? And more to the point, you know, if, if the foster kid and you don't get along and the foster kid moves on, you know, that means the foster kid doesn't have any continuity. Is the foster kid going to do his or her homework, et cetera, et cetera? So, there is a high cost. It's not a cost in crime rates. The crime rate went way down. If you take career criminals off the street, the crime rate's going to go down. And we do have you know, higher taxes to pay for all of these prisons. And the cost of a prison room is something between thirty and sixty to $70,000 per bed per year. So let's assume they're all career criminals, which they're obviously not. You're still paying $70,000 per year in capital and operating costs to create that bed to pay for the prison guards, to provide food, three square meals, and to provide rehabilitation services, some of which are paid by the state for that particular individual. Another factor uh, in crime rates around the world is urbanization, which is part of economic development, increases the crime rate. Right. If you're in the rural countryside, basically everyone knows everyone. If you rob someone's house, it's pretty hard to keep a secret. If you're in a big crowded city, there's more targets, there's more unemployment, there's more dislocation. The kinds of social controls, which are partly cultural, are not present in rural areas around the world as they are within cities. And the alienation you get from migrating from the rural countryside to the city looking for a better opportunity, and you don't get it, leads to most of the terrorist groups around the world being based in urban centers, not in rural countryside. It may be that Al-Qaeda is hanging out way out there in, in, in the rural, remotest regions of Pakistan and Afghanistan, but the more typical terrorist groups is not this millenarian group that you know, are basically trying to take over the world or blow up the world. Typical terrorist group is some poor urban neighborhood of kids, usually male, with high degrees of education who can't get a job in countries that quite often have 3.0 plus percent increase in the population per year. Um, more than double or triple what is in the United States, which is more than double, triple what it is in Europe. In Europe, most countries have between 0.5, in the case of Italy, to uh, 1.0 children per couple per family. Whereas the United States is over the 2.1 replacement rate, because of death it's not 2.0, or something like 2.6 or 7, but that's also because we have immigration, which Uh, Immigrant families have more kids than American families generally have. Uh, Now, who are the countries with low crime rates, even the ones that are urbanized? If you look at the type of uh, statistics and and the list, first of all, Europe has much lower crime rates than the United States. Let's assume the crime rates are accurate, because even though I cast some doubt on that possibility, uh, Europe has lower gun ownership than countries like the United States, which has high rates of gun ownership. Within the United States, the states that have the highest rates of gun ownership have the highest murder rates. Now, that could be a spurious correlation. It could just be that people have more guns because the murder rate is higher and they wanna protect themselves. But there's no causal relationship between the rate of owning guns and the high murder rate. On the other hand, you could have the hypothesis that uh, murders happen because people happen to have a gun and they use them. And if they didn't have the gun, they wouldn't use them. But it's all, <coughs> there's also plenty of variation because cons, uh, states that have high gun control laws, like New York, also historically have had high murder rates. So if there is a correlation, it's not a perfect If the correlation is causal, it's not a perfect causal relationship. Urbanization seems to be a better predictor of murder rates. Then say, uh, certain cultural characteristics, being on the frontier, cowboy culture, uh, historical use of guns, distrust of government, and other such factors. Uh, the lowest rates in the world are places like Luxembourg and Denmark. So countries that are very homogeneous, crime rates are higher when there's ethnic or racial conflict, even though most of the crime in those countries Are intra racial or intra, that is within the ethnic or racial group. In the United States, blacks are the biggest victims of black crime by far. So uh, one can say that uh, African Americans have just as much interest or more interest in getting the crime rate down as other groups in the United States because they are more often than not, they're more often victims of crime than other ethnic groups are in addition to homogeneity one can say that you know whether a high gun ownership rate or gun control law rate or not is present or not if you've never let the genie out of the bottle you're going to have lower crime rates both murder and other crimes committed with weapons that is in many of these european countries you know it's it just never been allowed for even cops to have guns now that's no longer true but it was true 30 years ago Almost none of the bobbies in England had guns until about 30 years ago, ever. Uh, And England has had an explosion in crime rate higher than we've had in the last 30 years uh, for reasons that could be explained by the factors that I've been suggesting, including more heterogeneity of their population, more urbanization, higher rates of unemployment uh, than the United States, uh, et cetera. Japan has a very low crime rate very homogeneous population. The police in Japan also have a role far beyond the role that we see it having in the United States. Uh, It's almost like the role of the family doctor in the United States used to be back when we had private practices and uh, visiting you by your family doctor. Family doctor was kind of a counselor. The police person uh, officer in Japan is a marital counselor. Uh, is involved with keeping the kids in line in a kind of parental type of way, very uh, patrimonial role that's just unique in the world, as far as I know. And a lot of people attribute that greater social role of the police officer to Japan's very low crime rate. But still, even Japan has had a vast increase in crime, rapid growth in the economy, rapid urbanization, also a huge organized crime problem there which, among other things, has led to uh, parts of the country where the uh, Japanese mafia is well organized have poorly constructed buildings that collapse during earthquakes, such as the Kobe earthquake in 1995. Uh, the country with the highest crime rates in the world by far is Russia. So you can't say that it's always a relationship between an authoritarian regime and lower <laughs> crime rates. Certainly, Russia had a very low crime rate during its totalitarian phase of communism. But since uh, its attempted democratization under Yeltsin in the 90s and its reestablishment of authoritarian rule under Putin and now Medvedev, since that period of time, the strong crackdown on civil liberties, on human rights, uh, in the North Caucasus, Dagestan, Chechnya, and Ingushetia, uh, the Russian police force is basically a death squad. They just go around murdering anyone they can after they've tortured them to try to fight the terrorists, as they call them, which are you know, ethnic separatists fighting, especially in Chechnya, uh, on two occasions. And, and the Second Chechen War was ass- asserted by Putin as acting as prime minister and then to be acting president before he got elected for the first time about nine, nine years ago. Uh, with the idea that you know we're not going to do what happened the first time, which is we've got all this human rights criticism about shooting innocent people and tearing down buildings. Uh, we could have won that war that way. So this is how we're going to fight the war, and this is how we're going to win. Now at the same time, Russia plays in a very interesting dance. I mentioned they're a member of the Council of Europe, which has 47 member states from Europe. The only country in Europe that's not in the Council of Europe which was expelled as a candidate country was Belarus. So 47 48 European countries, which includes Transcaucasia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, as well as all the countries uh, west of there, like Ukraine, Moldova, and so forth. Um, As a member of the Council of Europe, uh, Russia doesn't want to be kicked out either. They want to get into the European Union someday, get all that money, get access to markets. And so they've been told to reform their judiciary. So the judges always rule against these police practices in the northern caucuses. But of course, uh, just because the judges rule doesn't mean it's ever going to be implemented. The court rulings are completely ignored uh, as a matter of policy. If you, you want to be the most cor- courageous thing you want to try to do after you graduate from college here and the most at risk to your life would probably be a human rights monitor in the northern Caucasus of Russia, uh, trying to help these very, very courageous journalists and human rights NGOs there trying to stop the police death squads from murdering lots of people who won't talk. Now, what about sentencing policies? Does that explain any of this? Do countries that have long sentences and or capital punishment able to get a better control over crime than countries that do not? The United States have always had the longest sentences. we have not had determinant sentencing until relatively recently. We used to give a lot of discretion to judges. You know, If it's your first offense, a more lenient sentence than if it's your multiple offender. Uh, and, but it also was criticized as, you know, why not treat like crimes in a like manner? And so now we have more determinant sentencing. And generally, the crime determines uh, far more what your kind of sentence you're going to get than in other cases. Um, Do we find crime rates going down when sentences are lengthened or not? Well, one of the problems is when you lengthen sentences, the prisons get filled up longer because instead of emptying them out and having a revolving door, more people are in there. So a lot of the long-term sentences are not served because the prisons are at capacity, even when they've tripled the number of beds over the 80s and 1990s. A second problem with uh, trying to figure out a relationship between the length of sentence or the presence of capital punishment uh, is that it's a problem of multiple regression statistics. Probably none of you have studied multiple regression statistics. Anyway, it's a statistical technique that takes a number of variables on the independent variable side and statistically determines the correlation between each of these variables independent of all the other variables so if you know the concept of correlation between two variables and you know that's not necessarily causal it could be spurious coincidence like rate of ice cream consumption and the temperature of the day I mean unless you think that you know the heat really forces you to eat ice cream it's only a partial relationship or the rate of mental illness and the number of transistor radios in the world is a perfect correlation uh, but it's not because the transistor radios drove everyone <coughs> crazy. It's just because they started counting mental illness about the time when the, the transistor was invented and adapted to transistor radios. You don't even know what a transistor radio is anymore because nobody uses them, right? Anybody use a transistor radio? I think we made one in school. You made one in school. I sometimes carry it and listen to the broadcast. Uh, but I guess most people get it from there broadband network or wireless broadband network if they listen to the radio at all is that right I don't know um, all right so multiple regression it's really hard to get really accurate data that can statistically and independently determine what is what difference does an extra year make to a sentence and the crime rate right so the crime you know crime is a function of lots of factors right I've mentioned just a 10 or 12 of them already. If you had 10 or 12 variables, could you get accurate statistics for all 10 or 12 variables? And would the statistical analysis produce a pattern just of correlations? You have to infer a causality from the correlations, but could you even get the specific independent effect that's statistically significant? If it's not statistically significant, it's not because the data is necessarily bad or that might be the reason, it just may be that the data don't indicate a statistically significant independent correlation for each one of these variables. So, there's lots of statistical studies. If any of you do a master's in criminal justice, you'll take the basic statistics class and do criminology, which is the study of crime and all these other variables. And half the battle will be trying to get the R square statistic, which is the percentage of the variation that can be explained by the variables that you've. Named and a really high r square might be .42, which, which is to say only 42% of the variation in the crime rate, if that's your independent variable, can be explained by the, the variables that you've identified. So statistically, even though we've got lots of experience doing these studies, we still can't get really accurate uh, estimates on the independent effects of these different variables. Um, I think the one correlation that seems to hold is we don't know uh, what causes crime, but we have a better understanding of trends. It's easier to explain why the crime rate that we have is going up or down. We can't explain what causes people to be criminals, but we we can explain what causes more of them to commit more crimes. So factors like Uh, the length of sentence does matter in increasing or decreasing the crime rate at whatever you have. We can't necessarily say why uh, a certain area has a higher crime rate than another area, but we can more easily explain a locality against itself. Because then you're using the same statistics from the same area over time against each other, as opposed to taking statistics from all over the world and trying to explain why uh, a certain area has a higher crime rate than another. So the unemployment rate is a very important predictor of the crime rate. The length of sentencing is a very important rate. The rates of gun ownership uh, doesn't change very much. So that's not a good predictor of change in crime rate. And, And the evidence is very ambiguous also on capital punishment, in particular, as opposed to extra years of prison. All right, let's, let's now turn to the families of law. We've already spent a lot of time comparing common law with civil law, but I do want to talk about the parts of the chapter dealing with socialist law, Islamic law, and other types of Confucian orders, uh, just to look at um, the, these these comparisons. First of all, before we go to Islamic law, let's talk about religious law in particular. Religious law, if you look at the Quran, the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament. There is religious law which is given to God, in which the punishments are imposed on generations for eternity or for lots of time, and which the penalties are not specified. Or they're specified in particular for a a particular punishment uh, on generations for an act of rape or murder or theft and then there's religious law that is more similar to our secular law, which are specified punishments applied by a unit, be it a village, be it by elders, be it by a quasi-government, uh, for specified acts. So in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, you have lots of uh, specified crimes and other illegal acts for whom the punishments are, are Denominated, Deuteronomy is, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is filled with all of these kinds of punishments. And it's interesting that even among rabbinic law, even among Orthodox Jews, those laws have been reinterpreted to mean something different than what it literally says. So even though it might say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, if you take someone's eye out, you lose your own eye. Uh, in the most Orthodox Jewish tradition, that still has generally not been. M- m- interpreted to mean that you should have your eye gorged out if you happen to take somebody else's eye out. So even you know, among textualists, at least in the Jewish tradition, there's a fair degree of reinterpretation that goes on. Uh, now, it is true that most religions have t- tremendous internal conflict over the extent to which you take religious texts fu- as fundamentally true or not, But even if you do take it as fundamentally true or at least religiously inspired, the room for interpretation allows for varying applications of the rules in concrete circumstances. And also the words basically often get reinterpreted as standards change when it's no longer accepted. Most Christians who may be fundamentalists don't take Deuteronomy literally. I don't know if that's an inconsistency or not, but it, it's a fact of the matter is I don't hear any movement in the United States government among those, even Christian terrorists like the ones arrested last week in Michigan, were, were calling for a rebellion based on its reading of the Book of Revelation. It didn't call for a re, you know, rebellion and a militia uprising based on a reading of Deuteronomy. I mean, if, they, if, if you wanted to be a fundamentalist terrorist group, you would say, we must now chop off fingers of, of thieves, because that's what the Bible says. And I, I don't know that the Deuteronomy says that. But I certainly, you know, I think it's, it's done that way in Iran, because the Quran has that kind of prescription. And I know that both the Old Testament Hebrew Bible and the Quran have provisions for stoning for people who do very bad things but not as bad as probably stoning someone to death. So that's an interesting thing about religious law is that there seems to be, in religious practices, a lot more tolerance for deviating from criminal and other legal provisions than other religious proscriptions or commandments having to do with, let's say, homosexuality or uh, obedience to the church and so forth. I don't know of any religious law anywhere in the world, even in Iran, that where they follow all the rules most of the time. Uh, And I think the explanation is quite simple. You know, Deuteronomy would be an example of the rules that the Israelites had for themselves at that particular moment in time, and those rules were not "quote unquote" religious, even though they were in the Bible. In other words. There was religious law, which was vague and exposed you to eternal damnation if you sinned against God. But if you sinned against your fellow human being, uh, you were doing an act that was prescribed by a rule for that particular community in that historical moment. And that's recorded in the Bible. But it takes a leap of faith or uh, a different interpretation to say, and that rule was meant to be for all people for all time, and not just the herders of livestock in the particular part of Egypt or the Middle East uh, two, two to 5,000 years ago. Now Islamic law today is, is interpreted through sharia. Uh, sharia is, an, is a set of interpretations constructed by human beings, which is not one thing. There's 25 different schools of sharia interpretations, and they vary between whether you're Sunni, or Shia, they vary, or, or, or a mystical Sufi, for example, they, they vary depending on whether you're in one country or another. And where the countries do have is, uh, Islamic courts or religious courts, like in India, where there are courts for marriage law, personal law, family law, and inheritance, for example, Hindus get, go to Hindu courts and Muslims go to Muslim courts and the Sharia that's applied in the Islamic law in the Muslim courts of India today, which were established by the British in colonialism, are one version of Sharia. It is a conservative one compared to the civil law. But it's not the only one. Some countries have much more harsh interpretations than others. The Shariat bill that was introduced in Pakistan by Zia al-Haq was designed to introduce Sharia, but the Pakistani courts have not been as aggressive as, say, the Iranian courts, because Pakistan comes from a secular tradition, in spite of the fact that they introduced Sharia law under Zia in the 1980s. But that was done really just to justify his dictatorship and also to motivate support for the Afghan jihad, which was being run out of, of. well, by the Inter-Services Intelligence branch of the Pakistan Army out of Northwest Frontier through the Khyber Pass into Afghanistan. And it was convenient to have religious law justify this, because then they were take, getting paid $10 billion, and the Pakistan Army stole a fairly large chunk of that uh, in promoting that rule. Now, it should be noted that then, that countries that use Islamic law in, in, in relatively narrow form like India. And you know there are many divorce cases and inheritance cases that don't go to religious courts because the Indian Constitution also proposes that uh, the law of India is a civic law and based on civil law. So they have this contradiction in the Indian Constitution which says, on personal matters, Hindus go to Hindu courts and Muslims go to Muslim courts. But then they get cases that say, but if, if someone doesn't want to go to that kind of court, they don't have to as opposed to Iran, where the judges are all controlled by the Revolutionary Guards, and judges get fired, just as they get fired in Venezuela by Hugo Chavez, where there there is no issue of religious law as such, but where the the judges have no judicial independence and autonomy, the regime can clamp down to make sure that the people that they want to be framed and prosecuted for violations of religious law are framed and prosecuted so they can rule by law as opposed to being ruled under law or having rule of law, where the rules are neutral, autonomous, and are theoretically applied uh, because violations have occurred, not because it's ruled by law, which is a system where you choose a law when you want to persecute someone you don't like because they oppose your regime. And in particular, you know, most Islamic countries have only used Islamic law for private law dealing with personal matters and not public issues such as um, opposing the regime or making a political statement about some particular matter. The rise of civil law, that is the civil law tradition that emerged in the word, came from Napoleon's spreading of the law that we talked about, in part to get the church out of law and get the church out of politics. Napoleon revolution. Was similar to the Mexican Revolution in that it was an anti-clerical revolution where they expropriated in both countries the property of the church, and designed to get the church to stick to religion and not to public life, and so by proclaiming a civil law throughout all the countries he conquered, and even after Waterloo that civil law remained. Napoleon was saying we're not going to use canon law, we're not going to use religious law, or religious courts anymore at all. The the religious the only courts that the, the religion can use is, is to, you know, punish their own people for their own activities within their own clerical walls, and that may be why all the civil law uh, countries, and, and the world generally, don't have lawsuits against the church because the church was supposed to govern itself on its own matters. All right. To conclude today's discussion, let me just point out that the development of the modern state, and in particular the democratic state, was to create autonomous, independent lawyers, judges, courts, that were free from not only religion, but also from politics. And the law is meant to be applied to everyone without any political or religious consideration. Now, we talked about the fact that in common law, uh, there's discretion as to whether to proceed. And in civil law, there's not. And then you have a necessity defense. But it's, it's fairly clear that. The decision on whether a crime has occurred in the civil law tradition is an independent judgment free of politics or religion and not to be influenced by any of these other considerations. Whereas in these religious courts, particularly under Sharia courts, it's obligatory to theoretically pursue these matters. But in practice, none of these Muslim-majority countries that have versions of Sharia apply to the public law do, in fact, pursue most of these cases. Otherwise, people would be stoned to death all over the place, and they have no intention of trying to deal with a population that would react very negatively against that kind of attempt in a modern state like (laughs) Iran, which is highly educated, highly urbanized, and not likely to accept everything that the regime that's still strongly in power would like to do. Okay, thanks very much and we'll see you on Wednesday when we'll we'll have our meetings of our groups every Wednesday preparing our moot court.